Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're starting a new worship series tonight, church. It's called The Cries of Our Hearts, and we'll be talking over the next several weeks about what we long for, that we can't get for ourselves, and the help that we expect Jesus might be able to give. And to get at that, we'll be reading stories that are all sort of in the third quarter of Mark's gospel. If you divided Mark's chapters into sort of four parts, we're reading in that next to last part, where Jesus is moving from a rural Galilean ministry on down south to Judea and eventually Jerusalem, where there's centralized religious and political power. And in making that move from the north to the south, he's moving toward danger for himself and for his followers. So this section of Mark we'll be reading in uh, tonight, uh, actually beginning tonight and reading together over the next several weeks, um, is a section of escalation. And the whole thing is kind of marked by Mark. It's bookended by two stories about blindness and the miracle of sight. So the one that we're reading tonight in chapter 8 is the first one, and several weeks down the road we'll read the one at the end of chapter 10, which is the very, very, very last story before he sends his guys to steal a colt for his satirical palm parade into Jerusalem. Remember that part? The whole last quarter of Mark's gospel is the passion narrative. In literary analysis of a long work like this, this um, way of putting two stories at the beginning and end of a section is called an inclusio, inclusion, right? And the author, by doing that, means for us to read what's in between the two matching scenes in light of those scenes. The inclusio, the blindness becoming sight on both ends of this long section, announces a theme for our interpretive work, reading the stories within it. I hope that'll make sense as the weeks go on. This is from Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, uh, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him away to his home, saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, so who do people say that I am? And they answered him, well, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, 
Mm. You, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then, well then, he began to teach them that the son of humanity must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said all of this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> but turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples. He said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. Dun, dun, dun. And follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of this gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Well, of them, the son of humanity will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I should have introduced myself earlier. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her. I am the lead evangelist here. It feels like I've been gone 100 years. I haven't even been gone, like at all. I was right here. <laughs> I hope it's okay with you that we follow Mark's cue and use sight and the lack of it as a metaphor for one's perception of the world outside oneself. There might be grounds here for an ableist critique of a culture that demands healing of damaged ocular nerves or congenital cataracts or glaucoma-induced blindness, although based on the number of pairs of glasses I can see in the room and the contact lenses and the LASIK surgeries I cannot see but nevertheless believe in, I'm going to go ahead and speculate that we mostly feel like physical sight is a gift we're grateful to have if we do and that we wish we had if we don't. I should say that the font on my iPad for the preaching of this sermon is bumped up to 23 point so that I can read it without wearing my reading glasses up here, the better to see you without, my dears. <laughs> Mostly in the Gospels, blindness is presented as one of several common ways that a person's body could be dysfunctional in that ancient world. It's listed along with other physical maladies that impaired the flourishing of human life. Impairments that Jesus could repair. As in Matthew chapter 15, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet and he cured them so that the crowd was amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. 
And because we are savvy students of the whole Bible, we know that they praised God not only for the individual repair of each one's brokenness, but because such healing was interpreted as the fulfillment of long-ago prophetic promises that God's soon-coming agent in the world would set creation aright, returning not only persons, but whole perverse systems to the state God intended. Like Jesus said that time, reading from the scroll of the ancient prophet Isaiah in his hometown synagogue in Luke chapter 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Mark's gospel includes no such catalog of personal or systemic damages all teed up for Jesus' restorative work. In the first half of his gospel, he hardly has time for anything but a slew of exorcisms. You cannot throw a rock in Mark's account without hitting another demon in need of banishment. Just read it. You'll see. And Mark reports that lots and lots and lots of generically sick people keep showing up wherever he goes more and more all the time. Like in Mark chapter 6, wherever he went into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Mark's Jesus is a general practitioner not a specialist. Whatever you got, he's good for that. And so Mark saves any mention of blindness and sight for right here, right now, at the very end of chapter 8, just at the moment that Jesus's ministry is swerving toward the end game locked in on a collision course with the powers that be. Jesus names that swerve himself inside that inclusio, that's your vocabulary word for tonight, inside the inclusio of two miracles of sight restored, one in chapter 8, one at the end of chapter 10, Jesus tries three times to tell his closest friends and followers that the whole game is changing. That far from guaranteeing his success, his immense popularity with the sick and the lonely and the kicked out, put down, cast aside crowds is going to get him in big trouble. Jesus here drops the mysterious parables about farmers and seeds. He speaks as plainly as he can, saying for the very first time in our reading tonight, just after restoring sight to that first blind man, then he began to teach them that the son of humanity must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the VRPs, the very religious persons, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said all this, Mark says, quite openly, as in our translation tonight, 
but plainly or clearly would be even better. This is the first out of three passion predictions that we will read in this third quarter of Mark over the next several weeks. You see, there's no mystery here, there's no metaphor, no parable, no riddle, just the solid fact that his way of being in the world, his merciful, just, generous, beautiful way of embodying the sovereign love of God among all of us won't be tolerated much longer. And wouldn't you know it, those who are nearest to him, the ones who have been with him the longest, just can't see it. You get it? They can't see it. Or to keep Mark in the driver's seat here, they can see something, but it looks like something else. It's like seeing people, but they look like trees walking. Now, that is a trippy story, is it not? The one about the time Jesus was in Bethsaida, and so people brought a blind man to him, and they begged him to touch him. And remember how he took that blind man's hand and said, walk this way. Just, just picture it, beloveds. Really picture it. These two dark-skinned, grown-ass men walking together hand in hand the way boys and men all around the world feel free to do as an expression of camaraderie and affection. Jesus holds hands. It's one of my favorite things about him. Anyway, Jesus, holding that man's hand, took him outside the village for some privacy, it seems, though for whom, from whom it's not entirely clear. Could it be that in Mark's imagination, Jesus is still discovering his own capacities, testing his own limits? If he's never reversed blindness before, maybe he needs a chance to try it away from the public eye before he adds it to his resume. Or maybe it's to preserve a bit of dignity for the man himself ogled by curious friends and bystanders that he can't ogle back, some of whom have probably wagered a few shekels on the outcome here. It'd be just like Jesus to manifest a protective instinct for the overall well-being of this man, not just his eyeballs. That let's go out of town move might have something to say about our own need for privacy sometimes, the chances that we should give ourselves to Try stuff, you know, stuff we're not sure we can really pull off, away from the constant evaluating gaze of others, and about how it's usually best to practice our own acts of mercy without putting our beneficiaries on display. It's a little bit of that restraint that Remy was talking about last Sunday. In any case, when they get a little distance away, Jesus MacGyvers a way to transfer that reign of God essence that flows in his veins into the eyes of the man without sight. All those generic sicknesses, I mean, all you had to do is brush his hem, but for blindness... Your peepers apparently have to be baptized in the spit of Jesus. And even then, 
it might not work, right? I mean, not all the way. Jesus spits and rubs and then asks, can you see anything? I think this is not rhetorical. I think he needs to know. And in a remarkable piece of speaking truth to power, the beneficiary of the holy salivary glands of Almighty Christ says, no, not really. I wonder if here we might find permission for a kind of truth-telling of our own. You know, the Christian faith has often been sold to us as a cure-all for all kinds of deficiencies in our lives. You know, like if you give your life to Jesus, the way forward is simple and guaranteed. That joy and peace will settle like heavenly doves on your shoulders. That prosperity will come as a reward for righteousness. That God won't give you anything you can't handle. That your marriage will be pain-free, your kids will be successful, your work will be meaningful because the Christian life is a blessed life. Or, on the flip side, that if you wake up to the falseness of that so-called gospel, if you open your eyes to see past the sentimental evangelical bullshit, if you take the audacious, arduous journey away from everything you thought you knew for sure toward the new possibility that God is actually bigger than you used to think, you might imagine an implicit promise that there will be an instant and enlivening truth on the other side of your deconstruction. Maybe a welcoming committee of progressives and even liberals waiting to give you a tour of the green pastures and still waters you have escaped to. One of the most frequent conversations I have with people, including a lot of you, is around the disappointment that clarity has not come. That the former false clarity you once had about God, the universe, and everything, you now recognize as blindness, as an impairment in need of healing. But lately, lately you feel like you've gotten closer to Jesus, the real Jesus this time, the one who act. Huh? You're pretty sure, and you have stood as near as you dare, brushing the hem of his garment, just trying to breathe the air of God's reign all around him. And now maybe, well, I mean, you guess you can see a little bit, but it's fuzzy and confusing, as if all the people were trees walking you don't know how to read the Bible anymore. You don't know how to pray anymore. You don't know how to deal with your family or even deal with yourself. And it seems like everybody you know over here is in therapy for the same shit as you. Is this what it's like when Jesus baptizes you in his own spit? Partial vision, blurry AF, scared to move in any direction for fear of crashing into obstacles you never saw coming. What if it were okay to say that to Jesus himself? I mean, what if you could just say, because he's asking. 
that it has not really worked as you hoped it would, that the clarity you crave is not yet yours, that there can be no peace until something else happens, and what that something else is, you don't know, because if you did, you'd have done it by now. What if it could be okay to tell the truth about all those trees walking? What if it could be okay because Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. Because he's the kind of Messiah, it turns out, who sticks around for feedback. <laughs> Can you see anything? He asks the man. He's asking you. And he waits to hear your honest assessment of how it's going. You know, it's not great, Jesus, you could say. And the Savior of the world would, for your sake try again with you, stay with you until he is sure that you can see with unimpaired vision all that there is to see in this world he still loves. Including, of course, himself in the world. Jesus wants to be seen in the continuation of this story, not only by the eyes of the formerly blind, but by the crowds who keep coming to him and the close friends who travel with him. So who do people say that I am, he asks, wondering if anybody can see him clearly yet or if he is still just an Elijah, John the Baptist, miscellaneous prophet tree walking the hills of Galilee. When Peter, bless him, gives voice to the possibility that only those closest to him have glimpsed that he is the Messiah, the longed-for savior of his religious kinfolk. It turns out that Peter's Messiah vision is still pretty staticky. Peter, and no doubt his disciple colleagues, don't want to see a Messiah who suffers rejection and execution. They cannot see violent victimization as the necessary end to his son of humanity solidarity campaign. Jesus will keep trying with them as he kept trying with the blind man of Bethsaida, hoping for their eventual clarity of sight so that they may see him for who he is. It is not lost on me that this is another way that Jesus is wholly different from the powers that be then and now. In so many ways, I'm reminded that it is to the advantage of many that my own vision remains muddled. Have you tried Lately, for example, to figure out what's going on with anti-trans bills in the Texas legislature? I dare you. I dare you to try and find out. It's like bigotry and fear-mongering are playing hide-and-seek in the Byzantine committee system of the Texas House. A bill that should have gone to one committee is slated for another select committee formed only for the purpose of harassing gender-diverse kids who want to play sports at school. And then we find out later that the same legislation has now scampered off into two different places, back to the original committee and to a second 
brand new select committee, identical legislation filed twice <laughs> and hidden from plain sight in the noxious cloud of the committee system. I hate committees. No hearings scheduled yet. We will keep you posted if we can figure it out. Or have you tried recently to figure out what Facebook had to do with the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol? And whether the executives engaged in insider trading? And whether Zuckerberg always knows exactly how toxic the thing he built can be and chooses to proceed anyway and lies to Congress and to us about it repeatedly, chronically, telling us all that we don't see what our own eyes have shown us? Have you tried to read the antitrust lawsuit filed and refiled against Facebook by the FTC or the corporate malfeasance lawsuit filed in the state of Delaware or even just the Twitter thread explainers of it all? It just, it just all looks like a forest full of trees walking. It's not clear because it's not meant to be clear because the powers profit when the rest of us cannot see clearly. Jesus is different. See? Jesus invites scrutiny. Jesus coaxes clarity. Jesus applauds vision. Jesus tells you the truth, and Jesus waits with you until you can see all that you need to see. Jesus will not profit from your blindness or your blurry half-understanding. He wants for you what you want for yourself. For the scales to fall from your eyes, for clarity of sight to empower your discipleship of him and your movement through this world. He's been so busy healing and exorcising, cleaning up and repairing. And most of all, I think most of all, he wants you to see him as he was, as he is. His power, sure, but also his divestiture of power, his deliberate emptying of self so as to be utterly, completely for and with us. A solidarity, a love so complete that it will cost him everything he's got. Can you see that? He asks us again every time we meet him. And often the answer is no, not really. Maybe. Almost? No. <laughs> and that's when he takes your hand in his own and says, it's okay. I'm right here. Let's try this again. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. 
We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.